starts now. Everybody, uh, great to have you here. Hello. You know what this is. You know what it is. I say it every Thursday. It's Friday Eve, which means the week is almost over. So it doesn't mean I wasn't really busy today. And it doesn't mean we're not going to be really busy tonight because a whole bunch of things happened in that Long Island serial killer story that I've got to get you up to speed on. For starters, it's day seven. And you would think after seven days, the crime scene would be done. They'd be finished processing because it's an itty-bitty house. But no, they're still there. Folks, you can drive five cars up to the front of that house, and that's the length of that house. Just park five old cars, nose right in. So seven days of searching a house that itty-bitty? What on earth are they up to in there? What have they found in there that's become so tedious? Well, we now might have a bit of a, a clue. We, we, got a, we got a clue thanks to the Daily Mail because there was a photographer out in front of the house that was so good at his job. He snapped some of the investigators coming out as they were holding notes. And some of the things as you zeroed in on their notes were spine-chilling Seriously, the notes they were taking, like a top 10 list, a secret vault, handcuff keys, a torn stained shirt. That was among the top 10 from the basement. I've got all the details coming up on that in just a moment. But remember what they took out yesterday, a large metal door. He told the neighbors it was to keep all his guns safe. He had upward of 300 in there. But now we're starting to wonder if that large metal door was for a vault that was written on those handwritten notes by the crime scene investigators who didn't notice that it was a telephoto lens that was taking pictures of them. Those details coming too. And then also sources uh, from the police now telling CBS that they believe at least one person was killed in that home. That might be why we've been there seven days. But I don't think it's just because one person. Again, it's a tiny little house and there's a vault with handcuff keys. Okay. Then, uh, wow, that wife. Can you imagine hearing that news? Can you imagine all the things that she was told? Because it didn't take long before she filed for divorce and it didn't take long before she gave a statement. And today we have her statement. And I, yeah, you can imagine. I'm going to give it to you in just a moment. I'll read it to you word for word. But I also want to tell you that in this program, I have news about UFOs. Uh, I, you know, started my career 35 years ago. I never thought I would say that on the news. I have news about UFOs and it comes from Washington uh, because we are a week away from hearings, government hearings on UFOs and three whistleblowers. Now uh, I have the witness list of who's going to testify and it's a good one. And it's not like, you know, lip service stuff. These are really, really good witnesses. These are high-level military folks that have seen a thing or two and testified to a thing or two. And now they're going to actually be public about it on Capitol Hill, in front of Congress, about UFOs. That, as I read something that just made me go, what? I think you're going to go, what? Okay, the director of one of the top government agencies. It was an agency that was just created a year ago to deal with UAPs, UFOs. Uh, the director actually said extraterrestrial technical supremacy is a main concern. Do what now? 
I'm going to give you all of that news, everything that he said, and I'm going to lay the foundations for the, the meetings that are coming up, that the hearings that are coming up. I've got some great experts on the program, uh, one who is an expert for the UK Defense Ministry, all of that in a moment. First, though, to the Long Island uh, suspected serial killer's home. Uh, we are still in process mode. It is still in crime scene mode. I never thought it was going to take seven days, that's for sure. I don't know how many more days it's going to take. That's what's so surprising. But to see the notes from the Daily Mail as they took their snapshots of the crime scene investigators coming out, holding these handwritten notes about what they found inside. You can't read it all, but you can read some. These are some of the things that they wrote on the notes. Ropes in the vault. Ropes in the shop. A floor tile with QS on the shelf in the workshop. And a torn man's shirt with stain in a bag in the closet in the workshop. And here's the one that upset me the most. And keys and handcuff keys in shelf under workbench in the workshop. That's a lot. It's a lot to take in about a secret vault found in the basement. Take a look at that Daily Mail exclusive. Like this, this photographer is one of the better journalists out there. He knew what to look for in his pictures and he zeroed in on the hands that were carrying these tears off of a notepad. And that's how we know now that they found a secret vault in the Long Island suspected serial killer's basement. And then couple that with what CBS uh, found out from their police sources that um, at least one of the victims was killed at this home. At least one. All right. So there's one other piece of reporting that I sort of was stopped in my tracks today. And that is what happened when they told the wife and the kids of uh, Rex Heuerman. As they're arresting him in New York City and slapping the cuffs on him, they're bursting into her home with her two adult kids there, and they're showing her pictures. I don't know what's in the pictures. I wish I did, because um, she seemed, and this is their description, surprised and embarrassed as the police showed these photos to prove to her why they were telling her the story about her husband being arrested as the suspected Long Island serial killer, dumping bodies on Gilgo Beach. Her response reportedly was this, and I will quote her, okay, it is what it is. And then she released this statement through her lawyer today. Let me read it for you because I know that print's real tiny. So as you can imagine, our client and her family are going through a devastating time in their lives. The sensitive nature of her husband's arrest is taking an emotional toll on the immediate and extended family, especially their elderly family members. Ms. Ellerup, her name is Aza or Aza Ellerup. Ms. Ellerup does not wish to comment further and has requested the public and press to please respect the family's privacy at this time. So I get that. Uh, if she's an innocent victim in all of this, this is about the worst thing that can happen to you. When the police come home and tell you that your husband of almost 30 years, with whom you have two kids, uh, has been murdering young women and dumping their bodies and tormenting their families by calling them with horrendous phone calls, using the dead women's cell phones. Just imagine if you're Aza Ellerup hearing this, or Victoria Huerman, his adult daughter, hearing this, or the son, who we have heard from neighbors has special needs. 
there's something else that happened to them, too. When the police came to their home and told them all of this, they confiscated things from the home. They confiscated their passports. They took their computers. They took their phones and their iPads. Undoubtedly, they took all of his. But reports are they took theirs as well, the families as well. And the history that's just been, like, vomiting out about his his tendencies towards engaging with escorts year after year after year. And recently, one of them told our Chris Cuomo last night that he had dinner with her eight years ago and wanted her to come to his home. Let me repeat that. Nicole Bruss is a former escort. She said she was on a date with him at dinner, got creeped out, and that he had asked her, come back to my home with me. I want you to hear her, uh, how, she, how, she, how she put it uh, to Chris Cuomo. Take a look. How's it affecting you now that you know you were right about this guy and he is, according to the police, what you thought he was? I always said to people, like, if there was a multiverse and I had gone home with him, it would have been a different outcome. Now, you got to help me because there's so much in talking to you that is different than what I expected from what we've been learning. First of all, he wanted you to go to his house? Yeah, initially when we first talked, he wanted me to just meet him directly at his place. But, like, I didn't feel comfortable, and I don't know, like, Nassau County at all. And, and then you hear the CBS report that sources within the police tell them that at least one victim was killed inside that home. All right, so there's one other thing. When the police arrested him, um, they arrested him in New York City. Originally, we were told it was because he's got gun permits for 92 guns in the house. So, duh, no-brainer. Maybe don't arrest him where all the guns are. But now we're hearing a second reason, and it is a good one. They said it's about a 90-minute drive back to Suffolk County. And they thought maybe when he was in the car with them, he just might talk. Don't know if he did talk. Don't know if anything was said. But like I said, as you see the things you're seeing come out of the house. Remember yesterday um, and the day before and the day before that, we were telling you about all the things that were coming out of the house. There was this really creepy child-sized doll with blonde hair encased in a glass case. Okay. And then there was a poster, a portrait of a woman uh, with a battered face, but bruising under her eye. And that was weird enough on its own, but when you couple it with what the, what the police said about the searches, right, that he was searching for porn of beat-up girls and teens, uh, it all starts to come into focus. And then there was this large cooler that was brought out of his house as well. In a bit, I'm going to take you to the house to get an update on the searching. But first, I want to bring you to Greg McCrary, because he is a former FBI profiler, and He's also a threat analyst. He's worked with the Bureau for nearly 30 years. Greg, I thought about you when I saw the Daily Mail and their exclusive photographs of the notes that the um, investigators were bringing out of the basement. And I'll just remind you, I'm sure you heard the report, but ropes in the vault, ropes in the shop, uh, tiles and a torn man's shirt with a stain and a bag and keys and handcuff keys. I suppose to someone of your ilk, this might not be surprising, but can you explain this to us? Sure. Uh, he's <clears throat> more of an organized type of serial killer, um, assuming he's guilty. And it looks to me that way he is, although he's legally presumed innocent, of course. But uh, bringing victims to his home would allow him to keep his kill kit a torture kit, all the restraining devices right there, bring the victim there uh, where he has complete control and privacy. And we know that he committed some of these crimes or is alleged to have committed them 
while his wife was away. So this all comes together to uh, create a rather uh, compelling narrative as to what happened. So, Greg, I keep saying that this house is tiny. Um, You know, you could I I did the math and the measurements. There was a car parked in front and and there were five car spaces in front of that house. That's how small this house is. Just nose five cars up and you've got the entire length of the house and they've been there seven days. Is this surprising to you, this long of a search in such a small space? I think it's telling. I think it's telling us that they are being meticulous and they're finding things um, in there and they're going slowly and going carefully, which they should uh, be doing uh, to get the evidence, to preserve it, to get it back to the lab, to be tested. uh, And there's a good chance that he may have kept trophies or souvenirs uh, of his kills. Um, Victim's clothing is missing. Victim's jewelry um, is missing. All those things may be there. So they're going slowly and um, being very careful about what they're doing, testing everything um, there presumptively, and then getting it off to the lab. So good for them for taking their time. You don't get a do-over. You only get one chance. So take your time and do it right. I, I hear you. I just am so surprised that it's taken seven days to yeah. process this this itty bitty little little house. Uh, but God forbid, who knows what they're looking at? Um, so the question I have for you is that when I thought about all the Gilgo bodies, four of them were wrapped in burlap, and he's charged with three of those. And he's the lead. You know, they they suspect him in the fourth, and they say it's a matter of time yeah. before they'll charge him with that. But the other bodies are all different. And, you know, one is a a toddler and and one is an Asian young male. And then there's also this weirdness about body parts missing from some of these bodies and scattered throughout Long Island, like as close to the edge of New York City and as far out to the far east end of, of Long Island. So with your profiler background, can you make some sense of the way a serial killer, if it's him, I'm not saying it is, but he's suspected at this time only, the way they might evolve, the way they may change their MO over the course of a year or two or three or ten. Yep, they learn by doing, uh, just as we all do. Um, think of an analogy like, well, back in, the, back in the day, we used to change the oil in our own cars. The first time you do it, you don't have the right tools, you get oil all over you, it doesn't, doesn't go very well, perhaps. But then you get better as time goes on, you change, you get the tools you need, you be more careful, you know how to go about it. And it's the same with these offenders. Uh, They may start sloppily at first uh, and then move forward. Each has their own underlying psychopathology, uh, which they're trying to act out during the course of the homicide. So uh, that you may see that develop uh, over time and and how they interact with, with victims. Of course, the challenge in a case like this uh, is to determine whether those other bodies are all his. Uh, some, some are, some uh, may not be, but you've got to sort all that out. So this is, um, a, his arrest is obviously a huge milestone in the case, but it's the beginning of the next phase of the investigation, which will, uh, looking at those bodies, but it's also going to be timelining him. Uh, we, uh, the first victim here was killed around 2007. He would be in his mid-40s. Does anyone really think he just began this in his mid-40s? Uh, you know, I'd be happy to wage a dollar or so. That's not the case. So going back, timelining him, every place he's been, 
um, uh, property he may own elsewhere, what, whatever. All that is underway. So we're in the next phase of a, of a long-term major investigation right now to see if he can be connected to other crimes in other places. I'm so fascinated by, you know, the evolution and how certain serial killers in the past have stopped and then started again. They've had breaks and it's just uh, it's sort of mind boggling. But can I have you back again? I want to have a whole other conversation about that. Sure. Yeah, of course. Greg McCrary, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for that. I want to get you live out to the house right now where our Alex Capriello is standing by. He's been reporting all week from there. So, Alex, when we came to you last night, there was like a bit of a, a flurry of activity and they were moving police vehicles and it looked like they might be starting to, you know, bring things out but block the press, you know, the view. What's the change today? What are you seeing now? And is there any end in sight to this meticulous search of the house? Well, the change right now, Ashley, is no change. In fact, most of these police vehicles are exactly as they were left last night. We saw them sort of jockey for position, sort of realign themselves. In our opinion, it looked as a way to sort of add more privacy to the situation, block the public, the reporters, the photographers uh, from seeing what exactly it was that they were doing. As you've pointed out, we know a lot more because of these wonderful cameras that are out here now and that are able to get some really clear images of these notes that are here uh, based from the investigative reports. But at this time, we can't see much of that at all. We had a great view for most of the week, but at this point, a lot of it's blocked. And I'm hearing lots of noise in the background, although it's dark behind you, but I am curious, um, and that's Greg McCrary, but we're going to go back to Alex Capriolo for a minute live outside the house. Uh, I'm curious about all of the neighbors and the tourists. And I mean, we've seen dozens upon dozens of people who are just kind of gawking at this spectacle. And right. make no mistake, it's a live spectacle. It's still happening. There's a police presence. There's, you know, crime tape. There's movement. There's stuff being removed. There's stuff being loaded into vehicles and driven away. So what's the status of that now? Are people petering out or are they still coming in droves? It's not nearly the same scene as it was earlier this week. I mean, it was still very fresh on, say, Monday, Tuesday. Don't get me wrong. This is still very much um, something that people want to see. A lot of neighbors, a lot of people from Long Island, New York, they all want to come out here and get a glimpse themselves. In fact, I have a sneaking suspicion they know exactly when our newscasts are because a lot of the times, five minutes before a newscast begins, we see a large group of people come out here. Uh, I would say upwards of about 20 here right now. Uh, But really, it's mostly about understanding the story more rather than seeing us out here doing our reports. They want to know what the latest is in this investigation. They want to hear about What's going on with Rex Hewerman now that he's in jail uh, with the latest in the investigative process? But, yes, still very much uh, a very busy scene out here beyond just the news reporters. You know, Alex, um, gosh, 22 years ago uh, when 9-11 happened, I remember getting a real familiar feel for communities in Long Island that uh, had heavy concentrations of police and firefighters because so many communities lost so many police and firefighters. And Massapequa Park, for whatever reason, is one of those communities that has a very dense concentration of police officers and firefighters. And I can only imagine how many of them are feeling if this guy is the Long Island serial killer, that he was living literally cheek to jowl right under their noses. Yeah, and honestly, from a personal perspective, uh, it means a lot to us, my family as well. I have uh, uncles and aunts that are part of 
NYPD, FDNY. Um, and so the law enforcement community is a huge part of New York and a part of Long Island. And I would say that's what I'm hearing from these neighbors here. There's a great deal of respect for the investigators that are right here behind us, working day in and day out, uh, trying to uncover every single detail at this house. When you drive by, uh, there's police barriers everywhere, but you'll see neighbors stopping and talking, offering a cup of coffee, water, food to the police officers that are here. So I think it goes beyond just respect. It's admiration, but also, yes, I think a little bit of confusion uh, as to how something like this might happen so close to so many people. In fact, uh, the next door neighbor right here, Etienne, he tells me he was retired FDNY. He saw Rex Hurman probably closer than anybody else here. And so uh, definitely um, that is a great point that you make here. And I think it's something that they're all trying to work through together. You know, it's interesting. I, I was also talking to a, a former resident of Massapequa Park who grew up there, a colleague of mine, and he said, if you think about it, Billy Baldwin is also from there. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is from there. Uh, Dee Snyder is from there. Jessica Hahn is from there. There's like a lot of celebrities who are from that, that community as well. So there's a lot of lore. Um, sadly, this will be part of it as well. Alex Capriello, I'm going to let you stop down for a, for a hot minute, but I do know that you've got an incredible feature for us coming up because just three miles away from you is the the house where the Amityville horror took place. And that became a, a subject of, you know, crime tourism and lore as well. So you're going to give us that tour in a moment. Thank you for this, though. I appreciate it. And break in at any moment if there's movement, Alex. Will do, Ashley. Alex is reporting for us live at the scene of Rex Hurman's home. Day seven of this raid. And Rex really liked his phones. Like, he loved phones. His cell phone, allegedly all sorts of burner phones, especially one that the police say was on him during his arrest. Um, and then allegedly the victim's cell phones, which he apparently, according to police, kept with him as well and used multiple times. They're all in evidence now, but the police say he used them to make taunting calls to the families of these dead girls. And one lawyer involved in this case says he thinks Rex Hurman might have taunted him as well. He's got a story about phone calls he received about this case with a voice of a man and also a woman. That story's next. You're listening to Banfield on News Nation. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. One of the more uh, bizarre and I will say sinister nature uh, or aspects of the the nature of these crimes, these these Long Island serial killings, is that the murderer decided to toy with the victim's family members who were left behind in grief, especially after they found out that the bodies um, of their loved ones had been found. The killer and the assumption by police is that it's Rex Hurman kept the phones, the cell phones of his dead victims, and then used them to call their families. And at least five times they called Melissa Bartholomew's family to say horrendous things, like accusing her of being a sex worker and telling them what he did to her and telling them that he murdered them. And it takes a twisted person, A, to kill someone, and B, to twist the knife into their family's backs. And then in a very strange part to this, he also checked victims' phone messages on their voicemail. 
allegedly Rex Yorman. Let's go one step further. A lawyer representing two victims found on Gilgo Beach, not charged in the Rex Hureman case at this point. His name's John Ray, and he represents Shan- uh, Sh- Shannon Gilbert and Jessica Taylor's families. And just as recently as January of this year, he got taunting phone calls from a man and a woman's voices in the background playing 10-year-old news clips of when his clients' loved ones were found dead and saying vulgar things in the background. And John Ray thinks it might just have been Rex Hewerman, and he joins me live now. John, can you describe what was in those phone calls? What, what happened when you picked up uh, the phone on these phone calls? What did you hear? Well, I, <clears throat> I'm not sure who it was, but a man uh, called at about 1.30 in the morning, and uh, it, he, he, he spoke very weirdly, uh, played some very strange music, uh, made a noise, he's scratching noises, and then showed a clip of a reporter reporting on Gilgo Beach back from 2012 in that time, and then spoke. Now, uh, our daughter had gone to uh, another state, had been in San Diego, uh, and she had left in all blue uh, because she was a runner, she, a race walker, and uh, that's where she was going to race walk with trainers that train in the Olympics. She's 18 years old. First time away from the house by her in her whole life from her parents. And the, the, the man speaking said he described a, a girl in blue and he mentioned that she was in California and she was by a window and our daughter was right by a window and climbed out the window with a cell phone in her hand. And it just completely transfixed us. Five seconds later, uh, he, he, or so, he called uh, her mother and did exactly the same thing. It was all taped. It was all very well, well thought out and carefully prepared. In March, uh, I get home late at night. I work hard. You know, I usually eat dinner around 9 o'clock, uh, so it's an unusual time. I, I get home. We're in a house with a lot of windows in the dark, surrounded by forest, and up on a hill. And uh, we, I'm eating. I just start to eat with my family. Same guy calls, same same pattern that I just described with the, the playing of the, the Gilgo Beach. And this time he says, uh, I hope you're enjoying your dinner. And then says, and I hope you're going to enjoy eating your pizza. With that, within five seconds later, the doorbell rings and uh, Domino's pizza delivery man was there with three pizzas standing there. We did not order any pizzas. So when we called the do- we called the police and we called Domino's Pizza to find out how the call came in. And they said, the Domino's man said it was a woman who called in with a man in the background speaking and acting like they were ordering, you know, pineapples and ham on the, on the pizza, that sort of thing. So and they, they uh, somehow convinced them to send the pizzas over without paying for them. I, it apparently had something to do with my telephone number that they had. So. Uh, this was absolutely paralyzing because we know he, for that to happen, he had to been surveilling us through our windows. Uh, it was very scary. But if it's, uh, if it, I, I mean, it it, it's scaring me. Just yeah, just hearing this story is frightening to me, John. I, after reporting it to the police, 
And now, since the arrest of Rex Hewerman, have you had any further contact with the police to see if perhaps they've now been able to trace, because they've done a lot of work on his phones, to trace and see if any of those phone calls to you were made by him? And if not, do you think it's Rex? I don't know if it's this fellow, but when I, I uh, and her mother were at the arraignment of, of, this, of this man, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, uh, this giant ogre is standing there, and that uh, and and DA Ray Tierney's talking about a, that they caught him with a pizza, and they show a pizza box. I, I mean, so I, it, right away, both of us thought, could that be? You know, could could it be him? It, it could be. I mean, I don't know if it is or not, but it, it's somebody that that plans this really well. It was an intelligent, ugly, horrifying thing, and he, he makes this screechy noise too. This weird kind of noise like that it's a human voice making that noise so and it's 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 long the call is long it's not not you know five seconds so somebody's thinking this up and doing it for what reason i have no idea except in january i i was activating the examination of various witnesses in the case i have for shannon gilbert by taking their depositions so things were moving again and as soon as they moved we got these calls just one last question. Have you had any calls since Rex Hureman was arrested last Thursday? Uh, n- not really. We, we, you know, we get calls all the time where people hang up. That you can't count. But I haven't had any calls like the ones that I just described since, since uh, March. We, we you know, I, I hope where that as you look into this, at the office. go ahead. Yeah, we had, we had a call here, but not when, you know, before he got arrested, of course, at where this, that screeching voice was called here at the office. And you could hear in the background, it was like people in a bar. But my whole family was here at the time the call was made. That happened twice. And uh, both times the whole family was here at the office. So why, you know, why did that happen? I don't know. But it, it, it was similar. John, do me a favor as you continue to investigate this. And like I said, they have his cell phone records uh, pretty extensively by now. If you discover that those calls were indeed from Rex Hewerman in your conversations with police, hopefully this case is still, um, you know, open and active on their part. Please let us know. Uh, It is chilling to hear that. And I'm sorry that you and your family have had to go through it. Thank you for being on tonight and telling the story. All right. My my pleasure. Thank you. John Ray joining me uh, again. He is an attorney for the families of two of the victims of the Gilgo Beach uh, murders, Jessica Taylor and Shannon Gilbert, receiving all of these frightening phone calls. And then, as you just heard, this mystery pizza delivery, just chilling. All right, I'm going to switch gears only for a moment, but because this is really significant. And News Nation broke news uh, a month or so ago about a secret government program that a whistleblower, highly placed whistleblower, highly respected military vet, a secret program that's being you know, conducted by the U.S. government but hid from Congress. And now the House Oversight Committee is about to hold its first ever hearings on UFOs. And the Republicans at this point are already accusing the government of stonewalling the public from getting information. And I now have the witness list. And if you have ever wondered If the government knows stuff and isn't telling you, wait until you hear who this witness list is, because you are going to be real excited. That's coming up next.
You're listening to Banfield on News Nation. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. I have it. I got it. And I'm so excited. It's the witness list. And look, I know we're in crime and justice, right? So you and I, we get all wound up about witnesses. But this one's a little different. This is a congressional hearing and a witness list doesn't usually get me all excited. But these three, they do because they're super smart, really highly respected, uh, well-placed military whistleblowers who all say they've seen UFOs. Like, not just seen, they've seen lots of information about UFOs and retrieving crashed UFOs and crashed UFO pilots. So you can imagine when I got my hands on the witness list, I'm like, pop the popcorn, the hearings are coming next week, I can't wait. So, all right, let me just start with the names. Uh, David Grush. I like that one because exclusively on News Nation, he told us all about the alien retrieval program or the crash retrieval program um, that... Congress is being, you know, kept, you know, kept out of that. The Pentagon has it and no one in government's allowed to know about it. And then Ryan Graves, uh, he's a former Navy pilot uh, whose Naval Squadron captured the Gimbal and GoFast UFOs that was captured on uh, infrared back in 2015. Those are famous, famous images. Um, David Fravor, he is retired Navy commander, famously witnessed that Tic Tac. Do you remember that 2004 Nimitz Tic Tac UFO video that uh, even 60 Minutes covered it. And he said, I can't explain it, but it ain't anything that I've ever seen, nor is it technology that we could ever um, figure out. And now Representative Tim Burchett, Republican from Tennessee, says the federal government and even NASA are blocking investigations uh, at every opportunity. And um, next week, he says these hearings mean, quote, we are done with cover-ups. Here's what he said. Take a look. Last year, the House Intelligence Committee held a hearing on UAPs. They brought in some Pentagon bureaucrats who only had two answers to the questions they were asked. I don't know, or that's classified. This hearing is going to be different. We're going to have witnesses who can speak frankly to public about their experiences. They do exist or they don't exist. They keep telling us they don't exist, but they block every opportunity for us to get a hold of the information to prove that they do exist. And we're going to get to the bottom of it, dadgummit, whatever the truth may be. Oh, my goodness, did he curse? That's serious. I want to bring in Ben Hansen. He's the host of Discovery Plus's UFO Witness. He's been following the story closely. He knows way more than I do about all of this. So should I be as excited as I am, Ben, about these three witnesses? I mean, look, you don't get credentials higher than these guys um, as whistleblowers who are going to have to testify under oath and answer, you know, pointed questions that people have not answered up until now. I'm as excited as you are. Um, I think they're playing this just right. I'm totally team Burchett. Um, (laughs) When he came out, you can see the passion. The rest of that press conference, he not only talks about those witnesses, but he talks about their efforts, gives you a little behind the scenes when they're receiving phone calls. Uh, One of the other reps, I believe it was uh, Gates, go down to Eglin Air Force Base because these uh, pilots were seeing things and having encounters. And so when they went there, they were stonewalled by a general who basically said, uh, yeah, we brought you here, but we're not telling you anything. Get out. So they're human. They're human. You can see that passion. And the three witnesses are very solid, like you said. Um, I think we're, we're kind of giving a primer to the rest of the public right now and bring them up to speed with these solid witnesses. 
Okay, witnesses, that's one thing. Are we going to see evidence? Like, there's a lot, right? Even Burchett said he's seen evidence of things that could turn us into charcoal. And that was just like, I'm excuse me, <laughs> pig and powder? So are we going to be able to be privy to some of the things that, um, you know, high-level whistleblowers have seen, Congress might end up seeing? Will the public see this stuff? I don't think at this point um, we're going to see much. For those who are really into this, I, I am always optimistic, but I'm never disappointed when they give us something. I think this is kind of going to be kind of a review on the record in front of this committee uh, to tell people that, yes, um, we have evidence. Um, they probably are not going to be able to share the actual direct evidence of a crash retrieval program. Um, most of us have heard the stories from Fravor and uh, Graves, but it's putting it on the record in front of this Congress that this really happened. And, the, and Birchett did say they might have some visuals, but they, they're not sure at this point. So don't let that, you know, be the smoking gun and the disappointment because that is coming. We have full, um, uh, I guess you could say, optimism that other committees are planning hearings. And I've talked to insiders who have said videos exist where we have F-22s and F-15s doing loops, or I'm sorry, the craft doing loops around them. And it, it makes the Tic Tac video look like child's play. Well, I can't wait for Wednesday, and I think you and I both will be, you know, one after the other with the popcorn waiting to see what we see and hear what we hear. You'll have to come back next week. Thanks, Ben. Absolutely. I plan on it. Thanks, Ashley. Ben Hansen, again, is uh, like the extraordinary host of Discovery's UFO Witness. So I'm not done with this topic yet because if you didn't know this, almost a year ago to the date, uh, I think it was the 15th of July last year, there was a whole new uh, government agency that was born. Yay! But this one's cool. It's called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. What? It's basically a UFO office. It's a combination under the DOD and then the Director of National Intelligence, and they got all together to start investigating all these reports, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And the guy who's the director of that big agency said, and I quote, intelligent or extraterrestrial supremacy is the biggest concern. Oh my God, I'm digging into that next. You're listening to Banfield on News Nation. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. His name is Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick. He's a scientist, he's a military intelligence uh, officer, and he's also the director of the brand new Arrow, the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Fancy, fancy acronym for uh, the place where it all gets done, investigating UFOs and UAPs. And here's something he told ABC, and I'll quote him, being caught off guard by, quote, intelligent or extraterrestrial technical supremacy is a top concern for his investigators. Do what now? Yeah, that made me a little nervous, but he's not giving any proof. Doesn't say one way or the other whether he thinks they exist. So Nick Pope would be the perfect person to talk about this with because he investigated UFOs for the British government, and he's live with me now. Nick, that quote sort of took my breath away. Being caught off guard by intelligent or extraterrestrial technical supremacy is a top concern for investigators. It, should I be as wound up as I am about that? 
Yes, absolutely. This is a bombshell quote. And, and I just saw, saw a different uh, clip where he made the same point. And, and he said, um, what keeps you, the question was, what keeps you up at night? And the answer was technical surprise. And then he went on to say that could be adversary technical surprise or extraterrestrial technical surprise. And that is unprecedented, actually. I have never heard that before from, from the guy running the U.S. government's UFO program. How much of the focus should I put on the adversary, which could be Russia, China, some other unfriendly nation who may have technical supremacy, or some unfriendly planet or beyond our solar system, uh, you know, somewhere out there where there's truth that isn't friendly? Elsewhere in that same interview, he made the point that there isn't one single answer to the UFO mystery. So some of this could well be Russia and China. That's not off the table. But for him to say so openly that a key concern was the possibility that this was indeed extraterrestrial and and there might be this this technical surprise. I, I mean, this is unprecedented. It's also what this is. The timing is not. Um, accidental. This is a case of the empire strikes back because this this is being dropped into the narrative just before these hearings next week. And it's all about narrative control. So nothing happens by accident in government. This was carefully scripted and things are unfolding as we speak. Ah, that means you have an invitation to be on the show next week because Wednesday is the big day. Thanks, Nick. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. So I said Wednesday, and I'm going to tell you there's also a little programming alert for Wednesday. We've got our special report, the UFO whistleblower hearing. It starts at 10 a.m. Eastern uh, right here Wednesday on News Nation. Make sure you don't miss it. And speaking of paranormal activity and, you know, stuff that makes you go, yes, I just did that. Um, Claims of paranormal activity at this home in Amityville decades ago, uh, where the grisly murders of the family happened. Well, that's just a couple miles away from the Long Island murder site. So after the break, I'm going to take you there on a little tour about why this area became so famous almost 50 years ago and what it means for what's happening now. It's next. You're listening to Banfield on News Nation. To find News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. It was November 13th, 1974, and the young man's name was uh, Ronald Defoe Jr., 23 years old, murdered his whole family, just took them all out in their beds. That was gross. Uh, Thirteen months later, the Lutz family moved into the house, and they moved right back out again 28 days later, saying it was haunted. They said there was strange smells, there was oozing slime, blood in the walls, cold spots, family members levitating in their beds. The lore was so captivating, it led to a major motion picture, the Amityville Horror. And the iconic attic windows that you see way up there in the top, those became just like visions of terror for so many of us. Still, people come. 50 years later, almost, they they come, the tourists. So our Alex Capriello took a little walk over there from a couple miles away where the Long Island serial killer suspect lives. Take a look. 
For days, police have been right here in Massapequa Park, New York, searching for evidence tied to the Gilgo Beach murders. This house could very well go down as one of the most infamous in all of Long Island. But it's really not all that far from another notorious home made famous by countless films, books, and shows. I'm talking about this one, the Amityville Horror House, only three miles from where Rex Hewerman lives. In 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed his parents and four siblings right here, shooting them one by one with a rifle. He was convicted for the murders and spent the rest of his life in jail before dying in 2021. But I do like the American flag. Hey, everyone, thanks for being here. Stay tuned. Cuomo's next. Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. It's Thursday. We're live, so let's 